All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first episode of the Gonzo Bible Study. Uh, I'm your host, Robert Clark, and with me today is Reverend Dr. Richard Clark, also known as my father. It's my father. <laughs> oh, happy fall day. <laughs> um, we're actually sitting here on the eve of the, the festive day of Halloween that people like to celebrate. But we're actually uh, going to spend the day talking about something that's had a slightly uh, bit more positive effect on the modern world. No right. way. Something. Yeah, you know what? No, I mean, you mean we're not going to do what everyone else has been doing the last two weeks? <laughs> <laughs> no goblins and ghouls. Although, oh. thankfully, this is not a video podcast. Otherwise, you might see our, <laughs> our, our ugly faces. Oh, oh thank you. <laughs> well, God bless you. You're welcome. Um, but no, we, uh, we're actually uh, going to talk about a special event that actually will be celebrating its uh, 500th anniversary tomorrow um and to for all intents and purposes kicked off a movement that changed the course of humanity um you know we we'll uh we'll dive right in i guess uh so past o'clock faja <laughs> we, uh, what what is having its 500th anniversary tomorrow well this uh all through the year in fact some uh, some, uh, probably very few of the 200-some Protestant denominations that came up out of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, but we're marking the 500th year of uh, the 1517 event with uh, Martin Luther, uh, an extremely concerned, extremely uh, well-read and studied young monk of the Catholic Church uh, as he posted the 95 Theses on the door at the Wittenberg Church. Um, anyhow, uh, this, is, uh, this is the event itself. Uh, we, we marked it and discussed it to some extent, uh, tried to sermonize on it a little bit in our worship service, but I imagine it passed by many. Right on. So Martin Luther... Not to be confused with Martin Luther King here in the U.S., but the the original Martin Luther that actually inspired the name change um, of our of our national hero, um, the the German monk that was raised by a minor family and eventually you know went into schooling to pursue a career as a lawyer, a lawyer, lawyer yeah, yeah. an actual lawyer, uh, and then he swapped over that after a thunderstorm. It was a lightning storm he was I, calling I, I, I don't. I don't recall exactly, but he had only been in the law school for like two months. There in the in the uh, the late spring of fifteen oh five, and and by the middle of July, this this occurrence. Um, I don't recall the details of it, but uh, literally, uh, as one rendition put it, he forsook and renounced the world. And entered the monastery in Erfurt, um, there in Germany, and uh, and began that career as a monk and devoted himself to the study of the scriptures. That's crazy. No, definitely with a promising career, you know, is there that is seen to there by his minor father wanted to make sure that his son had all the education possible. But then he chose to kind of go a different route. He, you know, I think at one point there's a quote where he actually refers to his time studying logic and theories for him to be a lawyer as, as hell on earth. He, he, was, oh, yeah. not, oh, he yeah. was not into the, the theorems and the legal, legal system of the modern world as it existed in his day, from what I was reading. Uh, but, but let's Makes talk sense. more about what, this, what the 95 Thesis meant in its time and, and what it actually led to on a world scale. Uh, following those events, so well, they... yeah, it, it, you know the the thesis themselves. If when you read them, um, it, it's kind of it's kind of difficult to grasp in one sense of the word. Uh, I guess it depends on uh, on your perspective where you're coming from. Uh, for for the average person, perhaps to pick it up and look at it, it might seem rather strange because he's taking on, in particular, the, what was called the indulgences of the day. And, uh, and, and indulgences had begun in a very simple form. Um, 
and in kind of a benign form, but then had gotten to the point that by Luther's day uh, had gone so far out of whack that he confronts uh, not only the, the village priest, uh, the local priesthood, uh, up to perhaps the regional cardinal, he challenges the papacy itself. And this is to the point where uh, some of the some of the popes of the day. In fact, there were I think three in succession where the extravagances of the indulgences and and the projects themselves um, had gotten so extreme. Uh, in fact, the pope was granting indulgences for all manner of spiritual and tangible things. Uh, to those that would go on crusade and bring back as much, bring back as much wealth, because especially at one point when there was that uh, project facing them to rebuild the basilica in Rome, and and the coffers were empty. So uh, as one as one writer, in fact, I may have it I may have it marked here as one writer uh, was saying it. Uh, the louder the clank in the co- in the coffer. Uh, then the greater the greater the indulgence was to release one's family from purgatory or whatever the whatever the uh, desired effect was. Yeah. So okay. So you're addressing like what they refer to as the thesis eighty six from that actual thing where Luther states, "Why does not the Pope, who is wealthy today, whose wealth today is greater than the wealth of the richest Crossus?" <laughs> build the basilicas of St. Peter with his own money rather than the money of the poor believer. He actually gets into that where he yeah. actually he calls him out. He yeah, like, call, he calls him out directly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The twenty eighth, the twenty eighth thesis goes like this. It's true that greed and avarice increase when money in the coffer rings, but the intercession of the church has effect only because of God's will. And, and, and this is typical of, of many of these theses where they're, they're like sentence statements uh, to the fact that, okay, it's kind of like, like the, um, the prose uh, or the mid-books of the, of the Bible itself, you know, that are written in the poetic form and all. You've got the negative and the positive effect there. And this is kind of how he comes at it. But yeah, very, very much. Uh, so uh, like that no one he goes on uh, here's another one no one is so uh, is sure of the sincerity of his contrition much less of obtaining entire remission and so you know he he poses these things uh to challenge the thinking and the extremes of the day well so basically what the catholic church if i'm understanding correctly what the catholic church of the day was doing with these indulgences was allowing people via either extravagant deed or financial gift to buy their salvation back from the church. Is that is that basically what was going on, or is it what exactly are the ramifications of the indulgences, or is okay. it strictly well elevating yeah. your status in purgatory or heaven? Like yeah, the well the 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 thing of the indulgences had begun as we were talking earlier, and I was trying to find another reference here. I've, I've got uh, several different sources and some that I've had for uh, quite a while that um, kind of helped to bring an understanding to this, but they had begun on a very uh, minute level, I guess mm-hmm. you might say, to where people were, were you know, saying, what can I do to, to help the local parish uh, as I pray and as I seek God for this, you know this type of thing, and the priest uh, and the priest saying, well, you know, you need to pray uh, in a certain way, and then and it would be good if if you could bring this or add this to the to the to the contribution this week, you know. Uh, but then it had gotten to the point where, and especially uh, in in some examples, we were reading where uh, coming back from some of the the latter crusades that uh, people were coming back with all these uh, antiquities and supposedly cloths that had been on the body of, of Christ and, and splinters from the cross. Uh, it's, uh, one remark that they probably could have rebuilt the basilica with all the splinters that were sold that were supposed to be of the cross of uh, Christ. Relics. Yeah. Kind of re- getting into the cell of relics and stuff yes, like that. Yes. Gotcha. Gotcha. Because back then I f- it felt like all your cathedrals were based around what relic the cath- they had. Yeah. What statue of what saint or what mummified yes. corpse of which of the three wise men that they had. Or Very good. Very stuff good. Stuff like that. It seemed yeah. like there's a lot of 
what what in modern times we look back and it's like well it's almost idol worship to a certain extent yeah. that occurs with these with these relics. Yeah, that that yeah that probably says it pretty well. And because and even today, uh, if if folks who have traveled much at all, especially in Western Europe, uh, they they might realize that in some of the travel brochures and some of the guidelines for touring uh, some of the big cities and and the the great cathedrals and all that that some of them are still to this day identified in that manner. Mm-hmm. You know, by, well, this was supposedly where, and, and we've been there. We, mm-hmm. We've been to some of those where supposedly in that uh, sarcophagus or, or on this certain display at a certain altar, uh, that bone you see there is actually the bone of Saint so-and-so or something of that nature. And, and just, just kind of at a, at a point of curiosity, because it's, it's not really directly related to, but in a, in a side note, um, when we're dealing with, with Christianity in its modern form or even back into the to ancient Catholicism and all, what is the what what pitfalls does the does the Christian faith have as far as when it's dealing with things like relics or iconography superseding scripture? So, you know, we have so for instance like the film Silence that Martin Scorsese put out this past year yeah. where you had the Japanese culture kind of directly fighting and persecuting people that were becoming Christians and all that. But you also had this moment in that film where the priests are talking about the fact that the, the Japanese converts were not understanding that the relics themselves weren't what was saving them, that it was actually, you know, the cross that was being Mm -hmm. given to them by the priest wasn't what had the power. It's actually the message of it. Right. You know, so at the you know for people who are not for non-believers and you know and looking at this from an exterior, you know we see all of our churches adorned with crucifixes, and we see a lot of the similar iconography that reaches well back to before the Reformation and everything. You know that has some of its roots in the modern, you know, even to this day the Catholic Church and the building of those relics and all that. Where where is the division line between these? Relics that lead to idol worship and then simple church iconography of identification. So you had the believers in Rome that used to use the fish to identify themselves to other believers, strictly to identify themselves. So where, yeah, sure. where's the? I guess that's my question. Where is the line between we're worshiping a symbol and it being a symbol of what we're worshiping? Where, yeah. where do you see the the line there? Well, I think I think the line comes uh, ultimately uh, with each each person's faith, each person's um, experience uh, in the Lordship of Christ itself. I, I believe that's where Saint Paul was saying, you know, uh, all that I am is because of Christ. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Uh, a number of various uh, New Testament passages, and this is part of what brought such a conviction in the life of Luther, I believe, mm-hmm. um, in the fact that he, in particular, was studying in that first chapter of Romans, uh, there in, in verse 17, uh, 18, 19. Uh, in fact, this is where we had our text yesterday, uh, because Paul had just said, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, uh, for in it is the power of God for salvation. In the very next verse, he says, for in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So I think each person's faith, you know, I could wear something around my neck that's very special, you know, have on occasions, mm-hmm. um, you know, and some have, like you said, some are adorned with beautiful crosses, maybe the the, the ichthus mm-hmm. or other Christian symbols, and that's fine. And it, it identifies, it's a way of them expressing their faith. No problem. I don't think there's a problem with that mm-hmm. whatsoever. I, and like Paul said, I don't think so. You know, we, you and I were having a conversation earlier today about uh, some things in moderation, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And yet, and yet if, if suddenly I began to put so much emphasis on what I wore, I could never take it off my neck, uh, that that, that uh, uh, whatever that was around my neck represented uh, some kind of special power, you know, and had so possessed some kind of special power, then I think that at that point I have entered into what you were characterizing, and I think properly so, as idolatry. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because uh, even as John 
uh, was writing in the late first century in, in what I often refer to as the little Johns, you know, first, second, third John. Mm-hmm. And there, and, and one, of the, one of the last things John says to the church in those days, uh, and of course he was the only of the original apostles, you know, that, was, that, that, that saw uh, eldership, uh, saw years. All the others had been martyred at younger ages. But John said, dear beloved children, flee idolatry. Don't, don't let it get a hold of you. Don't let anything take hold of you. In other words, you need to, like Paul said, we need to possess our faith, uh, you know, and we know that Christ possesses us as we invite him in and, and that uh, and there, no man can shake that. So, you know, at the same time, though, we don't want to become so possessive of a tangible item or article uh, to where we start making that God, you know, or assigning that, you know, and I think there's a, there can be a danger there because as humans, we, we put a lot of stock in things, don't we? I mean, yeah, <laughs> well, absolutely. No, I appreciate that. that Cause that kind of clears that up a little bit because that, that is, it seems to be, I didn't like know if that said, answered. No, no, absolutely. It does. Cause that, that kind of ties directly back into some of these things that Martin Luther addresses in these 95 theses with people having a sense of what their personal faith was apart from what they were being yes. self-assured of because of these indulgences yeah. and stuff yeah. like that. He yeah. addresses those things because the, there were, and, and to be my take on it mm-hmm. is that there were not only with the indulgences, but with a lot of the other extra biblical things beyond or outside of the Bible, uh, doctrines that had been brought into the Roman church in particular, this is what increasingly I think is bothering Luther because we find him in his person um, uh, to be, this this young man was, uh, uh, I guess what we kind of call a brainiac. Mm -hmm. He was a reader. Uh, He was one of those very few, we brought this up in our congregation yesterday just to give folks something to think about. We just assumed in our day and time, everybody goes to school, everybody ought to go to college, everybody ought to have all this education. In that day and time, the social structure, you had only a very minute percentage of the population that had what we would even consider to be a reasonable education, right. could read or write. Yeah. And he is in that upper tier, even considering his humble means you know well beyond even the population that could read and write the portion of the population that had access to holy scriptures oh, there you go see that's a whole nother thing that there's a whole nother yeah that's that, right. that comes up there too yep, yep. Mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and you know this is one of the things this is uh harold Lenzel wrote a, a little book some years ago um and and can i can i just quote him here yeah absolutely. He, he's and this is one of the things i think is a is a kind of a bedrock in my thinking about who Luther, who, who Luther was and what he represents, even to this day, he made this comment, Luther strongly supported sola scriptura, by which he meant he would, he would not believe anything that could not be proved from scripture. And he would believe, he would believe anything taught in scripture, even though the church denied it. And it was this principle that Lenzel says, of biblical trustworthiness that led to the second principle that became such an important thing to Luther, sola fide, uh, which man is saved by faith alone. And you see, that's that passage, that life-changing passage that we were in yesterday in Romans chapter one, verse 17, he says, for in it, talking about the gospel of Christ itself, Mm -hmm. the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. And here he was quoting the prophet Habakkuk. And he says, the just shall live by faith. Or the modern, more modern translation, but the righteous man, the person that wants to be right with God, shall live by faith. And suddenly it impacted him, I believe. Uh, you know, not just as a suddenly, so, so to speak. I think there was a sudden when he just realized that, you know, the switch was thrown, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But I think it had been growing in him for some time that as he read the scripture, and he realized that it was not a matter of keeping all the doctrine of, of any given church. It was not a matter of even the law itself, but it was a matter of the gift that God had for us. And think about the fact that at that time, people, the majority of people, when they attended a service of worship, they did not understand what was being said. It was a language the common man did not understand. 
nor did he have access or the ability to comprehend or even read it for himself, much less develop or allow it to impact his life. One of the things, uh, one of the little uh, things that we passed around, we had different, uh, different slips of Reformation concepts that came out uh, uh, that we passed out among our, our folks. And, and one of them was this, that the Reformation created a demand for all kinds of religious writings. Readership was so great that the number of books printed in Germany increased from about 150 in 1518 to nearly 1,000 just within six years later. So the impact of, of Reformation, the impact of... Go ahead. No, well, no, just the impact of that revolution. And, and you know, uh, and this is where, you know, a lot of folks say, was he a reformer or was he a revolutionary? Well, he was a revolutionary. Okay, okay. I mean, that's a clear thing. Um, But in my opinion, because the funny thing is, is here you brought up the 1518 date, of course, the the anniversary of the thesis being the 1517. Yes. But by the, literally a year later in 1518 is when he was excommunicated from the church, if I remember correctly. Okay, okay. And that's actually when you see the boom of textual writings on scripture skyrocket. Yes. Uh, here's a quote, actually, from Martin Luther from uh, one of those publications that came out after his excommunicado uh, called The Divine Discourses mm. uh, by Martin Luther. And he says, The Holy Scripture surpasses in efficacy all the arts and all of the scientists of all of the philosophers and jurists. These, though good and necessary to life here below, are vain and of no effect as to what concerns eternal life. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Unpack that. that that's okay. That's <laughs> no, but <laughs> from the man himself. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly. right. From the man but, himself. But that addresses <laughs> back to what you were saying about him being such a what we in modern times call a textualist when yeah. it comes to scripture. Because yes. that's what he was. You know, yes. nowadays we call people that believe the the divine word of God being as written, what it says is what it means, and that these are now called textualists in a lot in, in a certain circles of religious study, if I'm if I'm correct. On yeah, that, okay, there you yeah. go. Um, so it's it's amusing how he he considers it to be above any modern philosophy of his time. You know, getting away from like yes. you said, church doctrines and everything. Yes, that it doesn't require philosophical debate because it's already laid out. It's already expounded upon within itself. Yes. And see, yeah. and I think the very, it, to kind of take a step back, mm-hmm. because, you know, this is, this is the thing. The word reformation, the word, the, the, the process or the action of something being reformed. Reform means literally to amend or improve by change uh, of form or removal of faults and abuse. And that really defines that simple definition really defines what Luther's true intent I believe was mm-hmm. because now now this is where there's still to this day mm-hmm. a lot of debate and, and I know uh, I was reading a very interesting article on the National Review that came out uh, here just uh, just as summer was coming in this summer uh, June the 20th by Russell Moore and uh, he was reviewing a couple of the of the stellar books that have been written about uh, Luther and the Reformation during this 500th anniversary. And there's some good reading out there and some of it's pretty heavy stuff. But to me, I think we step back and look at the simplicity of it. I believe his true desire was to see a reforming of the Roman church, to see, to see, more, to, to see more of the original intent and love and kindness of the Savior in the church itself. And you know, in that sense, I believe Reformation still needs to be going on today because sometimes we get caught in our trappings of how we present, how we, how we, uh, you know, we, we're so caught up in preferences and all that uh, nowadays that, you know, everybody's got that so locked into what they want that we many times have lost the fact that we're supposed to be coming to church to worship. Uh, and I think sometimes we get lost in some of those things. He's, I believe he truly saw the church had lost itself in doctrinal excesses, in these indulgences, 
uh, in the excesses. And in fact, uh, there was rampant stories and, and some horrible uh, things that were coming out of Rome of, of some of the some of the immoralities and and even the debauchery uh, within the ranks um, of the of the you know the hierarchy of the church and all that, uh, which you know for those that were sincerely uh, in the day to day path you know working with the parishes and all that uh, to many of those this was you can imagine how disheartening mm-hmm. uh, when they when they thought about how their leadership was living in such excesses yeah uh, you know and and. Uh, and I'm not going to name names, but I mean, some of these things can be looked up in history and all too. And, I, and that's not my purpose here. But I really believe that definition. Um, and, and it's interesting. Webster gives a second definition that goes like this. To put an end of an evil by enforcing or introducing a better course of action. And, and so what ultimately did happen, you know, some say, well, Luther failed. The Reformation failed. And then others say, no, it succeeded because change did come. There was a change. And even though his intention, I believe, I, I believe his initial and sincere intention was to see a reforming, or if a lot of us in the Protestant realm like to use that word revival, uh, to revive the works. Instead, it, it came to a, well, it came to heads. Mm-hmm. Right. It came to heads. Direct. And ultimately, ultimately, he became the outlaw. <laughs> as, as some have put it, you know. Well, you had, and if you look at if you look at church history and world history, up until this point in the in the early 16th century, you're only a couple hundred years removed from the church basically standing by and watching most of the world die from plague and everything mm-hmm. else, while they're in these castles and fortifications and everything else. So by the time you know they're they're left, you know you have those things um another question that i did want to bring wanted to ask you um especially especially with you being a a preacher in a church um and actively so what is when the uh outside world looks at looks at modern christianity and those things and you know a lot of a lot of people that i've interacted with over the years you know all they see when they come to church is the, the routine of religiosity of the, the you know doctrine of the church and all those things but then the the passing of the plate to receive tithes and offerings you know right. you know which of course as Christians we understand the significance of that and the scriptural references of that but what is actually the difference between tithes and offerings or what what's received in that offering plate on Sundays and these indulgences what what okay. where is that divide for people who are not initiated in the in the church world? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because to some, and I can understand. It looks like the same thing. I, I understand, and and to some, even uh, to maybe more coarsely put it, some say, well, you know, you're pay you're required to pay dues just like I do at my my club, yeah, or something like, or some society I belong to, and and I can see where that can easily uh, happen. And, and, and can become the attitude, perhaps, or the understanding some have. Mm-hmm. A lot of it there, again, is based in our choice. When, when one comes to faith in Christ, uh, where Jesus Christ is Lord of their life, and, and they've entrusted their life to him, it's, it's literally like the scripture says, we're leaning, we're, we're relying upon him. Uh, and, and of course, uh, you know, the scripture, uh, the scripture tells us. I mean, we see Jesus says we're held accountable according to his word, and John 12 says that's how, literally how we're judged according to the word which he spoke because he said, I came not speaking that of my own initiative, but that which the Father told me. And so Christ uh, pleasing the Father you know, all the time, you know, and that, so that representation of God himself in the Son uh, brought that word to us. And of course, we have confidence then, like, like Luther did, in the scripture that uh, that speaks to us, that tells us things like the, the just shall live by faith and, and so forth. Um, and, and so in that, we, we make a choice. Uh, and so then it's a free, it's something we do freely. I, I, love, I love the passage over in the Corinthians uh, about the giving and, and there Paul bragging on those that even, even those that were struggling, yet out of, their, out of that, they were liberal in their giving. You know, out of their own need, their liberality was impressive. 
um, you know, and pardon me for not quoting it exactly, but well, we could turn there. But nonetheless, you know, so it's something we give, uh, you know, when, when, I, when I give my tithes and offerings, uh, you know, here recently we've been giving toward the, uh, the global hunger relief. Mm-hmm. Well, ap- above and beyond what we've been given of our regular tithes based on our income and the blessings that we receive. And, and it's a joy to do that because knowing we can't outgive God, and knowing that we're part of his kingdom work means it's, it goes beyond us, you see. Now, if I see that, if, I, if I'm feeling compelled, so see some of that old debate is still around. Uh, and in fact, I think some of that may have shown through a little bit in a comment that Mr. Moore said in the National Review when I think he kind of took a look at some of our brethren who, who uh, you know, call on folks to give certain offerings so that they can uh, upgrade some of their equipment in, as part of their ministry and so forth and so on. And so, you know, I can sit over here and look at another person's ministry and say, well, they don't really need that building or they don't really need that bus or they don't really need that program or what, you know. But the thing is, that they're, they're over there doing what God wants them to do. I've got to trust them to the Lord, right? They've made a choice. I got to do what I'm led to do. And it may require me to have something totally else, you know. And if I represent that uh, through our committees and through our folks, you know, through our budget, however it's done, you know, different churches do it different ways. And sometimes it's just a matter of getting up at the altar and calling folks to, to be part of a project, you know. And, so, and folks do. Um, we've always tried to be very much above board on that and just make sure that it's a free will thing. And that it doesn't fall into this classification of, oh, well, there's a, there's a catch here, or, you know, and if you do that, you know, and, and oh, Lord, Lord, God forbid um, to, 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 to attach something to it, like, you know, and, and you're just going to be blessed in an extra special way, uh, you know, and maybe your dear departed grandma will be blessed if you just give that extra hundred dollars. <laughs> you know, and I know there's some extremes yeah. out there like, I've, and I've heard some of that kind of stuff. I, some that go beyond that fictional statement that I just made. But right. we, we would never want that. I would not want to receive that offering, to be right. honest with you. Uh, it needs to come from the heart. Just, just as Paul said to the Corinthians, because God loves a cheerful giver. Right. And, and you know, nothing makes a person feel better than when they've used their own resources to do something that blesses them as they're even doing it. Mm-hmm. And knowing that it's going for a blessing, knowing that it's going to be a blessing. It's just like, you know, just like we're here recently. We're, we're taking up foods to help replenish the coffers that have been hit on so hard uh, this last spring and summer and even the fall here with all these, these natural disasters and things and our relief agencies working with our missionaries hand in hand. And thank God, see, all, the, all that's already in place. So 100% of our offerings through our particular denomination go right to, in this instance, uh, global uh, hunger goes to feeding people, literally. Feeding people, in Jesus' name. Feeding people with that love. Um, you know, and, and some of the other things that we may do at different times in the year, whatever that uh, emphasis is, mm-hmm. it, it, that's where every bit of it goes. And so it's a joy to know that even though I'm right here in the United States of America, as blessed as I am to be in this, in this land of the free and home of the brave, that, that I, if I put a gift that's going overseas to somebody that, that just live, barely subsist, you know, and this is going to be a, an extra blessing to them maybe at a particular time of the year, that, that, just, that just, man, that just does something for me. Right on. So, so kind of to clarify, uh, so instead of like, so with the indulgences, they're literally trying to purchase favor of God. Yeah. For yeah, lack of a better yeah, word. Right, well, yeah. And, yeah. and for us in the, in the modern Christian world, the giving is simply to facilitate the further service that the church can be to its community. Yeah, that's you exactly. Know, I, you, know. you know, and we, I mean, like through our budget in particular, uh, and I know this varies from various churches and all, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, we have different impacts, and even within our our week to week, month to month, year to year budget, uh, we have different things that are are missional. You know, that go uh, to help things in our own state, our own community, our own state, and beyond in our own country, and then some beyond into the uttermost parts of the world. You know. And then some things that, of course, obviously keep the lights on, you know, help the pastor to be uh, uh, subsist, <laughs> all yeah. that good stuff, you know, as well. 
but right. But there's no atta- we're not attaching any special spiritual favors, you see. Yeah, this is where I think Luther, Luther to, and I'll try to bring it around. Yeah, I'm sorry. Right. I, mean, I, I chased the same that thing. rabbit. I, I tried to set you down a rabbit hole. No, you're but, good. But you know, I think this is where, where Luther had come to some clarity and where he was challenging um, even all the way up to the papacy. I, I think he was challenging the very throne in Rome. Uh, on this, on the thing of excesses, and and with some of these indulgences and special dispensations, that you know, uh, that no, it's not a matter of how much you give to whether your 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 long lost loved ones or this one who's gone on crusade comes home, or you know, or what what happens with your eternal soul. I mean, Luther points out the fact that the the scripture itself has settled these matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And, that was, and, yeah, I mean, that was that's one of the big yeah. things that through the Protestant Reformation and on with the Protestant faith we get is this returning of personal accountability of faith mm-hmm. to the individual themselves. You know, right. that's one of the things where as we get the translations and all. Exactly. Um, yeah, one of the things we passed out yesterday, one of the one of the emphasis it said was on the involvement of lay people mm-hmm. uh, during worship that was revolutionized. Uh, even even uh, even affected the layout of many of the interiors of houses of worship from that point on mm-hmm. to where the laity had more access, freedom of movement. And we find after, after with the effect of the Reformation that uh, it said even many of the physical barriers between priest and congregation were removed. Uh, consequently, interiors of local churches took on an appearance which many still have today. Uh, in fact, uh, many, many, uh, in some of our uh, Protestant churches in particular, uh, many of ours are laid out much like the the, uh, the synagogues were, you know, very open, very interactive, you know. So in a way, what Martin Luther was trying, was doing and the effect that it had was very much the same as that, that dividing cloth, that barrier in the synagogue being torn on the day of, yeah. the, of Christ's crucifixion. And resurrection. Yeah, yeah. There it's you go. The, it's yeah. the it's the allowing the people to the innermost, and it's it, yeah. I think it's a very scriptural. I, mean, he was, I think so, and I and I, and and I think also then this is why you know it kind of hurts my feelings a little bit uh, as a minister and all to think of how little emphasis has probably been put on this, especially in some of our denominations. Uh, now our good friends, the Lutherans, and obviously the namesake. Yeah, they a lot of their churches have been celebrating this all year long. In, in nineteen in, in two thousand seventeen, uh, they've been celebrating you know from Sunday to Sunday various things about the Reformation and 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 that's good that's great that's cool uh, but you know I, I think this is another good reason why we should mark events like this because I believe the Reformation was that kind of major thing in the world and it wasn't just Luther himself there were there were many uh, many others. Uh, in fact, I had, there was another statement there. Many other reformers were there prior to and even following Luther uh, in the Reformation. Obviously, you know, especially with the advent of the printing press. Yeah. You think about the Gutenberg experience and all that, yeah. and and these who became uh, that began to first skillfully use the power of the press, printing mm-hmm. press, to publish things, and we saw that in those numbers a while ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and also the the, the thought of uh, here's another thought that was that was written with the invention of the printing press and the introduction of pamphlets and booklets to the public women of the 16th century found increasing access to information that previously they had been restricted from reading studying discussing even listening to in public settings so you think about the dividing walls between the the minister uh, the uh, the priest the, the priest and the congregation uh, and, and, you know, the laity. And now think about that even with gender, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, I mean, and, and uh, throughout, Paul, one of the effects that the Protestant Re- Reformation had, and even in the personal life of Martin Luther, was the the conversion of his wife uh, that came yeah. out of the nunhood and, and married, yes. married Martin Luther. Yes. Um, that was one of, one of the reasons why Catholics... Um, Viewed him. This is actually a quote from uh, Professor Emeritus of History and Religion at Duke University, Hans Hildebrand, said Catholics viewed him as the epitaph of theological ignorance and personal immorality. 
Oh my! <laughs> that was that was wow. how how the the, the oh. Catholics uh, often uh, refer to mass. This is from an article on uh, Britannica.com from, yeah, from yeah. the Encyclopedia Very Britannica. Good, yeah. But uh, it's, so it's one of those things where they they try to paint him as this immoral. Oh yeah, you know. Uh, Corrupter of women and all how, that. How dare he do that? <laughs> yeah, how, how dare you know? How yeah, dare he? Yeah, and, and and with all due with all due respect, there was there was that counter reformation mm-hmm. that was launched almost immediately, uh, and and some of that and some of that was also the establishment of of the Society of Jesus, yeah. which to this day is the largest order within the Roman Church, and so the Jesuit order. Came about as a part of that counter reformation there, and you know, of course, you're always going to have in a struggle in in a human struggle, you're always going to have the pro and con. You're always going to have two sides to it, aren't you? Mm-hmm. And and ultimately, I, I you know, uh, I think the the blessings and the benefits far outweigh. Uh, I you know, I think his intention was true reform. Uh, yet, yes, there was revolution in it as well because, and it, and it, you know, some, some of that was taken out of his hands. Oh no, no. You the know, far, revolution you know, was far beyond his yeah. control. It yeah. spread like wildfire. Oh yeah, and and and, and in those years later, what was termed as the English Reformation, because you got to you got to know that in Holland, uh, in in other parts of Germany, uh, you know, in other parts of Europe itself, particularly that in in England. Uh, the Reformation took on different forms. Mm-hmm. You know, in England, you had uh, particularly the very strong influence uh, of the crown mm-hmm. in in what happened there, and that's a whole other story. Yeah. That, I mean, a whole that's a whole other ball of wax, isn't it? Thank but, you, Henry. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. He like, converted just so he could remarry. Yeah, <laughs> but interesting, you, interesting. You mentioned that about Luther's wife and all. And uh, here was another here was another interesting thing related to husbands and wives. And, and you can, hey, uh, for those listening, uh, ask yourself, is this better or worse? But while reformers rejected marriage as a sacrament of the church, and that was another thing, see, because that was okay. one of the seven sacraments, uh, marriage in the Holy Church, right? They expanded the role of the church in marriage. Now think about that for a moment. The church said you had to be married mm-hmm. in the Holy Church. And yet they're saying here that one of the blessings of the Reformation was an expanding of the role and here's what they go on to say. Couples took an oath before God and the ceremony was moved from outside the church on the doorsteps. And I, that, was, that was a little fact I'd forgotten about. The yeah. common man. The co- okay, no, certainly not the king. No. Or maybe the regent. Those the, ordained yeah, by God. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Those who make the coffers ring. Right. But now the common man got married on the, out in the front steps. Okay. And, and listen to this. The ceremony was moved from the outside of the church on the doorstep, a medieval practice, as the writer said, mm-hmm. to inside the sanctuary at, at the front of the altar, where today, we, where we still today, and that's why so many of us are, you know, some of us old dinosaurs are still trying to encourage young people to take their vows uh, with some thought and consideration and, and some study uh, at the altar, realizing that God's in the midst of what they're doing. And it is a sacred thing, but it's not, you know, it's it's between them, but it's between them and God as well. And so this is one of the interesting things that that from this point you begin to see people coming inside. The common man welcomed inside at the altar, making his vows to his loved one. Fascinating. No, yeah, that's, I, that's yeah. right. I, I I like that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, as someone who got married like at the altar, that's an, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. That's, I, I like that. You know, yeah. no, you do yours outside. No, it's okay. It's raining, but you go ahead and do it outside. <laughs> so that was something that actually was birthed as recently as the 16th century. Like that's fascinating. Yeah, that's more of a like, that's, you know that's that you think about people wanting to get married in churches or get married outside and all that, and we think of getting married outside as the new fad. You know, as far as oh, well, I just want to get married out in the the natural outdoors yeah, or well, whatever. And, yeah, and I've done many a ceremony in some but beautiful it was gardens. One of those things yeah. where getting married in a church wasn't an option until well, you, recent you, history. You see that the doors are opened. Yeah, the doors are open. In, pati- in particular, I think the emphasis there is more for the common man. Well, yeah. where he is welcomed now, he he feels more a part of himself. He's not just a spectator who kind of comes in with his head held low, and he stands up, sits down, kneels down, gets up on cue. Mm-hmm. But rather, he's becoming more a willing participant. 
He's receiving something, okay? He's not just being told you have something, but he's actually receiving something that's a lot a lot more personalized, I, I believe. I, I, I believe that's some of the real ingredients of what Reformation brought out. And, what, and, and maybe the spirit of Reformation still. So a minute ago, you mentioned something, the, the, you know, the Dresden Order and getting into some of the things that happened in the anti-Reformation side of things with the direct rebuttal of the, the Protestant church and everything that leads right into modern day with the, the Irish Republican Army and the, the Catholic stuff there and some of, some of, some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's stuff that impacts us even in this modern day. What are other things that, that negatively had to, had to be combated by Luther and those coming into this beginning of this Reformation? What, you know, what was, what was some of that that they were dealing with as far as the oppression and the power of what at the time was the Holy Roman Empire? I mean, we're literally, you had, you know, the most powerful political and force on the planet being your, being your opposition. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, one of the, some of the things that are continually talked about as far as some of the blessings of the, if you, if you look at the flip side, uh, some of the negatives that became the positives were the fact that many have agreed that the Reformation brought the people of that day out of what had been the Dark Ages mm-hmm. into a new day of enlightenment. And, and based on that, there was, as some have put it, there was a, a stirring uh, uh, changes of thinking, uh, of not only in the church and religion, but politics, the law, uh, economics, education. Uh, some have said, and, I, and I, if I'm not mistaken, I believe uh, uh, Russell Moore there in that National Review article even pointed out the fact that as he was reviewing some of the current books and all, that we would not have the modern age the advent of the modern age come in. In other words, I believe there were some, if you want to say dark forces, I don't know, that might be too veiled, but you know, the world was kind of being held into a, in a darkness. Uh, with, with, the, with, the, with the coming of the Reformation, it was like uh, the windows were thrown open, mm-hmm. you know? And, I mean, there was a lot of struggling. And, and listen, there were a lot of people put to death. Uh, there were a lot of dark days there yet. But from that struggle, there came a lot of light uh, and, and, uh, the, and just a freshness in a lot of those different areas that I just uh, specified. Um, and, I, and I think that's what some of the, even some of the newer works are saying that uh, are, are, you know, are, are kind of taking that opinion that uh, there, there were a lot of good things that have affected us right into the modern times, you know, current times. Yeah, so the the Protestant Reformation was not solely something that changed the the method of worship or the outlook of Christianity in the modern world, but it actually changed the the foundation of modern society and the progression of free thought in the modern world. You know, I think you have something where it seemed like philosophy and education and any kind of higher thinking became something that was beginning to move into the realms of the common man's experience. Yeah. You know, the, the higher thought was something that was starting to be encouraged, you know, amongst the common man. And especially with the translation of scriptures by Martin Luther into German mm-hmm. uh, and subsequently yes. the English and French. Yes. You know, we get into some of that, the impact of having... A, a holy text in a common language, which was yes. unheard of yes. up until the Reformation. Yes. You know, it's funny, a, a, a document of 95 sentences that was supposed mm-hmm. to simply help the, the church get its back <laughs> on the right path led to a, <laughs> a, a spiritual uh, reformation, but also a, a revolution of ideas in the fact that never before had someone thought about, well, if I simply can learn how to read, I can get to know the stories of the apostles and of Christ and all firsthand. I, and I now have access to that. You know, yeah. what, was, what was the drive for a common miner or a common person to learn how to read? Exactly. 
when they knew they didn't have access to any books, much mm-hmm. less the book that they felt was going to change their life forever. Exactly. You know, that was that was something that, as that happened, you changed the course of, of human thought. Yeah. Now, uh, uh, Rod Boriak and his, uh, one of the Lutheran writers, uh, as a part of the 500th anniversary, uh, uh, pulled several things from some things he had put together. And he had said Luther's exhortation to read and interpret the Bible on one's own and the impact of the printing press opened new doors for lay people that changed the church's approach to faith formation and Christian education forever. And then he said, he went on to say this, one of the far reaching impacts of the the Reformation was the promotion of applying the word of God to every area and endeavor of life in the church and in society. So it's not just a church thing anymore, Mm -mm. but it's the fact that the common, in fact, uh, another writer, and and forgive me for, I just don't recall who it was right now, uh, but one other writer had said that ultimately that we, we believe the rooting of the, the, the roots of that Puritan work ethic mm-hmm. that especially uh, came, uh, you know, was the, I don't know, the juggernaut of, of the American experience, the New World experience, right. has its roots in the Protestant Reformation. You know, where you have people, the common man now sees his everyday efforts, his job. He was not just serving the king. He was not just raising crops uh, for the feudal lord. He was not just uh, the baker, the candlestick maker, the the cobble, uh, the cobbler. He, this person now feels he has a particular call. He has a purpose. And, and, and uh, his purpose, his family, uh, what he accomplishes, what he produces means something, not just to that particular realm, but, you know, he's a part of society. He's a part of God's garden, if you will. <laughs> and and, I, and I, I, I agree with that. I, that. I really do. Some might call me short-sighted there, but I really feel like that was well called. Yeah, that's awesome. The uh, Protestant scholars... Uh, viewed Martin Luther as one of the most stunning exponents of authentic Christian faith since the Apostles. Uh, Yet again, I'm quoting from Hildebrandt's article. Mm -hmm. As the Apostle of the Reformation, we could refer (laughs) refer to Luther, I think, fairly. Sure. The, The message of personal accountability and the opportunity of textual investigation of Scripture for the common man and the beginning of the new world of Protestant faiths and, you know, what led to the birth of the Anti-Baptist and everything else yeah. and, and, into our, and into our modern things. Luther was a respecter of knowledge, first and foremost, I, be, I believe, you know, with, with the intent that knowledge be in the service of God and in the, in the, in the you know, you know, and, and in the exposition and the expounding and the expanse of extending, extending the faith to all man, which is, I feel like, the calling of, of Scripture based on reading and the, the teaching I've been under my entire life is the, the, you know, we're bringing it to everyone for everyone, which is something that, that was prior to this. Not a foreign idea, but it was an idea that was guarded and controlled by someone who there in the 15th century had decreed himself to have the powers of Christ to, yeah. to ebb and forgive yeah. sins. You know, mm-hmm. the papal see, you know, has, has had a lot of issues with, with its own self-proclaimed divinity. Um, yeah. But yeah. I, I believe with the 95 Thesis, no matter what his intent was at that moment, the ramifications as we sit here 500 years later is the fact that we are allowed to sit here and have this kind of conversation, not only about him as a man, but also about an open Bible sitting on a dining room table mm-hmm. and about the effects that had, what would, what would our modern world be if it would even be modern? If free thought had not been introduced via the translation and giving the scripture to the common man, yeah, absolutely, you know, yeah. That, that's 
it, you know, I, I, I'm extremely wordy there to get to yeah. the point, but yeah. but the the idea there is just it, it's it, it's fascinating to me that, that yeah. we got there. Well, it, it is, and and the whole you know, the, I I think the for such a time as that that Luther was, uh, and and men like uh, uh, Swingley and and you know Calvin and Wycliffe and. All, all the others, I, some of the other names I, I, I butcher when I try to pronounce them. There were so many uh, men, women also, that, that um, uh, took that stand. Uh, you know, I mean, Luther, Luther his, himself was, was um, has been, and of course, that's all, of course, all these things get debated, don't they? Yeah, but, of course. <laughs> yeah, ultimately. But even Luther was was said to have made the uh, statement. I had it. I had it marked here, um, and I was going to be real cute here and say it. And he said, "Here stay ich ich kann nicht anders." In other words, here I stand. I can do no other. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you know that's was supposed to be his his one of his famous statements. Um, and, and of course, some have disputed that that was uh, maybe someone took liberties with that. Whatever. Uh, I wasn't there. Right. <laughs> but I think he, whether he said that or not, he did that. Um, when he came to that point, um, connecting with what you just said, and I look at Romans chapter 1, verse 19, he says, because when he's talking about this righteousness of God, the just shall live by faith. That God is ultimately the one that's doing the judging of us uh, if we live in ungodliness or unrighteousness. And he says, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And I believe, you know, I could just see him sitting there in the dull light of a single candle or whatever. And, and that just hit him right through the eyeballs, right to the heart and right to his soul. To realize that that means he makes a decision. He makes a choice. Now, some, even to this day and time, some only want to keep asking questions. Question, why, 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 why? This, 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 this. You know, but I think there comes a point we make a choice. And I think there that's where, kind of like what Lee Strobel tells us in his case for faith. Here's, here's a guy that just a few years ago was an atheist and then spent uh, two years researching the resurrection of Christ to to kind of validate its disproval and ended up becoming a believer. <laughs> but it's kind of like what Lee Strobel says in his work on the case for faith, that it, it, it all wraps around a choice. And when we make that choice and when we come to realize that that's a personal word to us, then we have to act on that. So yes, I believe that's why Luther acted on the scriptures, and even though he was called an outlaw, even though he was considered excommunicado, mm-hmm. and all those things, yet he he pressed on there, you know. And I, and and hey, it wasn't all rosy days there either. But he took his stand, and there he stood. And I think ultimately that's what we got to do, Robert. We we all have to take that stand. We have to come to a point of making a choice, uh, rather than just keep asking the questions. Because, you know, there's always going to be questions. But I think that's the difference between a Luther <laughs> and somebody else that we don't even know his name. Because, you know, we're, you know, there's some guy down at the local pub uh, taking a big, big gulp and saying, well, what if, what if, or what about? Well, here's a man who, after doing the research, after reading the scriptures in their original languages and all, by the way, you know, here's a guy who says, wow. That means God's revealing his truth to me. And if I'm going to be righteous with him, I've got to justly square myself up with God. And I believe then when he turned and told an entire church that, hey, folks, this is what we got to do, then it was up to them to make their choice. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. You have simply put... A man that had 95 simple statements and questions that he wanted to pose to his spiritual elders. He wanted to have a conversation or a debate. Yeah. And what was launched from that was a freeing energy, a reforming action, and 
that's the fascinating thing. Here we sit mm-hmm. 500 years later mm-hmm. yeah. in the midst of all of the wonderful works of written scripture and books about that. We were sitting around the table here with thousands of pages of printed text. <laughs> um, yeah. All of which is about either Martin Luther or, or the scripture itself. Yeah. In a language that we can read. Um, the son of a of a an, of a air force yeah. an air force brat and the, yeah. the son of a preacher of a hey, Protestant yeah, minister, yeah. Um, and and talking about that and, and and talking about a man that had the attention of the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire of the day, and and the leader of the spiritual world of the day and everyone in between, yeah, who um, who had to be protected by his local magistrate, yes. Yes. From the Holy Roman Empire. Yes, yes. At one yeah. point. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and, and to read, and I tell you, there's a wealth of, sir, I'm, 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 I'm confident online those are available. There's a wealth of messages that were brought then where, where Luther addresses. Uh, there's correspondence back and forth to high officials, uh, political and religious uh, leadership, uh, where he addresses various issues. Uh, some of those sermons are quite famous, uh, so you know uh, it, it's a, it's amazing. They said that he was such a, uh, I guess I'm going to use that word again, kind of a juggernaut. That he that in a fortnight he would turn out uh, a thesis, handwritten, thoroughly comprehensive thesis on the. I mean, the man was the man was just almost relentless. Um, I'm surprised he had time to get married. Because, I mean, he produced such work. Uh, and, and I realize that we, we, we're, we're thankful to have laptops and, and digital processors and all the, and printers and scanners and all these great. And my goodness, here was a man doing it in longhand. And all of his reference was in longhand. Yes. He's, I yes. mean, that's just it. He's yeah. reading, he's yeah. not reading printed books. Yeah. He's reading other monks yeah. and other, other yeah. educated yeah. People from the churches, you know. So I, I, I know, and, I, and I'm sure you would feel this way, but just trying to be humble about it, I, I, I'm not even sure that in due respect I'm worthy to talk about such a man. We cannot treat him lightly. And I think, if anything, then the church should give a nod yet still today, even after 500 years, to someone such as Luther and the many others who were the reformers and those who who went to the watchtowers like the Old Testament uh, prophet told and, and got on the watchtower and sounded the alarm and or those who sounded all as well uh, so that people could continue with their night's rest. Mm-hmm. And thank God for that. Maybe while we're busy online trying to get tickets for the next event uh, or celebrate some silly holiday or something, maybe we can take a few moments and, and say thank you and perhaps dedicate a little portion of our lives to be a little more studious and a little, take a little more advantage of all the wealth of, of, of what the Word of God offers us and some of these wonderful people of His kingdom mm-hmm. uh, have offered us. A couple of the, here in closing, a couple of my favorite quotes uh, by Martin Luther just to kind of remind us that he was human and he did have things that he enjoyed and all that. Yes. He, he said, next to theology, I give music the highest place of honor. You know, that was something debated in the he church. Was yes. A lover of music. Yes, yes. And he, that was one of the things that is also indicative of the, the modern Protestant faiths and all that is the, the expression of music in our faith and, and, and all that. And, I, uh, having been part of different worship teams over the years and all, and been in concerts with Christian rock musicians and everything, I have to agree with him. One of the one of the fun things is being able to express faith mm-hmm. in music and and experience that, um, and experience human ex, human the the human experience through yeah, music. Exactly. Um, and so I, I think he definitely nailed that one on the head. Good. That's a good one you brought up. And then if. I'm not allowed to laugh in heaven. I don't want to go there. 
<laughs> I didn't realize he said that. Okay, that that's good. Yeah. He must have said that one over a schnitzel. I, oh, here, here, but good form. Just, just to remind people, where you know, every, we always see the the two main images. You see a Luther is the the stoic, heavy set portrait of him there in his middle aged, or you see the the one of the monk. Nailing that little piece of paper to the to the billboard there for of wow. the ninety five thesis. Yes, we forget that he was a human man that loved a, that loved his wife and had a life, and you know he had faults. He was human. Uh, I know if he were here with us today, he would. You know, he would say mea culpa, mea culpa for all of his yep, bad actions. Yep. And, and we and, wouldn't you know, agree with all of his opinions either, yeah, by absolutely. the way. He, he had some very controversial thoughts, too. He did. Yeah. But we can celebrate the things that have impacted us positively yes. and the work that he did do in the name of Christ that was positive. I think this is it's one of the, the wonderful things about celebrating a man 500 years after one of the beginnings of one of his great ministry of a ministry because that's really what it was the, yeah, that awesome. the 95 thesis was the beginning of a lifetime of ministry because he went on for another 30 years yeah, yeah. after that doing things for the modern mm. world Boy. and so may we all have such a life and wow. such a ministry <laughs> like uh, there, there, again. <laughs> there again um on on behalf of myself uh, and Dr. Richard Clark here. Um, thank y'all for tuning in. Absolutely. We hope you enjoy this episode of uh, the Gonzo Bible Study. And Great. we'll see you again soon. God bless. <laughs>